raw milk is still illegal to sell in 37 states. And that's from like based on laws from the 1880s. So back then, when cities were just starting to pop off in the states like Philly, Boston, New York, cows started getting brought into the cities. But the cities were conditions were terrible, super dirty. And a lot of people started getting sick from milk and dying. They also got sick from drinking the water because everything was just really dirty. And so Louis Pasteur comes into the picture with this new innovation where if you heat up the milk to a certain temperature for a certain time, it'll destroy all the bacteria. And so less people started getting sick from the milk. And so that became codified as the, nor- as the norm and the law. But little did we know at the time that pasteurization also kills all the good bacteria. And it turns out that raw milk has over 700 live bacterial cultures, which have this amazing ability to heal the gut. Hey there, my name is Wendy, and I'm an environmental toxins lawyer who is obsessed with showing women how to toss the toxins out of their life and embrace a more holistic lifestyle. I'll be dishing up bite-sized but binge-worthy episodes on all things detox, low-tox, and what's that toxin? And what is it really doing to my health? I'm breaking it all down for you, separating the myths from the facts and pulling back the curtain on the products and beauty industry. You'll hear my unfiltered and sometimes unpopular, but honest opinions. No topic is off limits. We'll dive into what's really causing our thyroid issues, hormone imbalances, infertility, and more. Think of it as a crash course for all things holistic living, but for real life. You don't have to do everything. You just have to start somewhere. Let me show you how. This is the Detox Dilemma Podcast. Welcome back to the Detox Dilemma Podcast, everyone. I have an amazing guest here today. Her name is Jane, and she is the host of the Farm to Future Podcast, which, by the way, Jane, I literally binged it. I want to say like in four days. I think I listened to every single episode. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> every episode. That's got to be a record. <laughs> I It was a lot. I was so into it because you not only have this passion for regenerative agriculture, which we'll talk about in a second, but you're a total foodie. And so when I started getting into some of your episodes that were like really food-based, I was all about it. Oh my gosh, that is music to my ears. I'm so flattered and thank you. And that means a lot because you have an amazing podcast and social presence too. So I appreciate it. I'm so happy you're here. So Jane, I would love if you would tell all of my listeners who you are, a little bit about your backstory, and then I want to dig into your health journey, specifically your gut health journey, because you and I have a very similar story, and it's actually a story that I keep hearing more and more and more from people, but let's just start. Why don't you give your story, your background, introduction? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on here. My name is Jane Zhang. I'm the host of the Farm to Future podcast, as you mentioned. My background academically is in sustainability. I studied tomatoes and urban agriculture and then did a whole project around acorns and wrote a children's book around acorns. But I would say today I'm more just kind of, yeah, a a foodie, like you said. And I love to, you know, find just high quality foods. And a lot of that came from my own just personal gut health journey and struggling with eating foods that just did not agree with my body. And so for years, I kind of just suffered. And that's one of the motivations why, you know, I keep doing what I do. And and I love talking about food. But yeah, let's let's rewind a little bit. So my gut health journey, I would say that growing up, I actually had a pretty ba- a balanced and healthy diet. So I grew up in a Chinese Canadian household, we had a lot of veggies, kind of rice based meals and a wide variety of animal proteins, we would eat the whole animal and like Saturday nights, we'd have whole fish and we'd my siblings and I would fight over who got the fish eyes. <laughs> so maybe oh my like gosh, typical- back, back before like <laughs> eating the whole animal was cool. You were exactly. you were doing it. Exactly. I could not bring that kind of food to school. <laughs> the 90s. So then in high school is when I started noticing some like IBS type symptoms. I started getting migraines on like an almost weekly basis. And there was one day when I had really really bad cramps and they weren't period cramps. It was like a stinging pain. 
And by my last class, I like it got so bad that I literally blacked out. Like I almost passed out and fainted on my desk. The school nurse had to get me. It was this whole thing. And my mom picked me up, brought me to the doctor. And it's kind of embarrassing because <laughs> what he told me was, you're constipated. <laughs> like Basically, you just need to eat more fruits and veggies, get more fiber and more water. LOL. And so that summer, I just really dove in on health. I like started running every day doing yoga. I had a giant water bottle with me and like started incorporating, yes, uh, you know, hydration, all the fruits and veggies. And then fast forward a couple of years in college, I majored in sustainability. And this is where things took a bit of a turn. And so virtually in every class I took and every paper we read really vilified meat, specifically meat or beef production, and also specifically factory farms. And that's important to note. And so we learned about how these operations were super water intensive, land intensive, energy intensive, and they you needed to have like entire farms of corn and soy to feed the cattle. And they were, you know, farting and, you know, releasing methane into the air, all this crappy stuff. But looking back, I realize a huge missing part of the picture, and I wish they told us this in school, was like, hey, look at this alternative movement around regenerative agriculture. And we'll get into what that actually means in a second, but CAFOs or concentrated animal feeding operations are not the only way to raise animals. They're a very relatively new, modern thing. And yes, it is a scaled way to feed a lot of people, but it's not the only way to raise meat. And so at the time in my 18, 19 year old brain, I was like, well, I guess the solution is just to not eat meat. And I think a lot of people felt that way and, and still feel that way. So at the time, I, you know, set out to cut out meat and ended up going vegetarian for four years. Within that time, I also dabbled in veganism for a year and also went raw vegan for a summer, <laughs> which was really hard. I was hungry all of the time. Okay, that's hardcore. I know. It, it was really hardcore. Admittedly, some of it came from just like body image issues and like wanting to diet and lose weight. Got it down this rabbit hole of YouTubers <laughs> of like fully raw Christina and freely the banana girl and in that whole world and um, was convinced that like, oh, eating raw fruits and like raw salad was the way to go. That wasn't sustainable for me. I remember going to the eye doctor and she looked at my eyes and was like, hmm, <laughs> there's something wrong with your tear ducts. Like you're, you don't have the lipid layer that you need in order to <laughs> form tears. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I like, have never heard of that before. I know it's so niche. And then I started to piece together like, oh, well, with like on a raw vegan diet, you like barely get any fat or protein. So I started to kind of piece things together. And then a couple of years after college, I moved back home. And that's when I started reintegrating meat back into my diet. So a whole nother layer other than the health piece is like the cultural piece. I don't think I've even talked about this on my podcast, but going vegetarian was like, it became this huge like conflict in my family. My parents did not get it. My siblings also were way younger at the time and didn't get it. And it was awkward because my parents would have to like cook me like a separate meal. And when we'd go out for like dim sum and things, it, it would just make things hard for everybody. I have a question. During that time period, obviously growing up in the household that you grew up in, the food that you eat, did you miss were, were you like making yourself not eat foods that you really miss? Like when you would go home, would you be like, oh, I, I wish I could have this? Yeah, definitely. Like I, I felt that. So I should mention too, while I was vegetarian, I spent a year living abroad in France and in Lyon, which is the capital of gastronomy in all of France. And they specialize in sausages and like a lot of heavy meat dishes. And so I think like psychologically, because I couldn't enjoy a lot of the main dishes and like the, like the actual good food that everyone was having, I would compensate by overeating dessert, right? So pastries became my thing. And like, I don't know if I would call it like a, a full on eating disorder, but I definitely 
struggled with like disordered eating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. By not allowing me to enjoy certain foods that maybe my body was craving, I ended up compensating in other ways. So I started eating meat again. It was started feeling better, I think, although there wasn't like huge noticeable changes. And then probably when my gut (laughs) issues got the worst is when I moved to Boston for grad school. And at that time, I was on a student budget, just like spent very little time and money on food. And I was eating a lot of ultra processed foods, drinking every weekend, you know, student life. (laughs) I was like, not healthy at all. And that went on for years. And I will say like beyond just physical discomfort, I think it changed my personality too and affected my relationships, my decision making. Yeah, a lot of times I was just not a fun person to be around looking back. It's interesting Um, that you say that because I think the majority of the people who think gut issues, their immediate instinct is to be like, bloating, IBS, diarrhea, constipation, that kind of thing. And people don't realize like 80% of your brain (laughs) operates from your gut. And so the vast majority of people that have severe gut health issues, the symptoms are not felt in their stomachs. It's in their brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah. I remember one time, like (laughs) this was after I cut out gluten my now husband and I, we went out to this ramen place and I asked them like, oh, do you have gluten-free ramen? I don't think they really understood what that meant. And they're like, oh yeah, gluten-free, whatever. <laughs> so I I ate the whole thing and I just felt so terrible after. It wasn't even that day. It was like the day afterwards. I felt bloated and that affected my mood. It, it was like, I guess brain fog is how you could describe it. And so, I mean, never again, but the gluten piece is interesting. So it was actually my husband at the time who suggested like, hey, why don't you try cutting out gluten? Because he had been with someone previously who was celiac. And so just he, he was like, you know, to rule it out, like, why don't you try it? And I did. I cut out gluten for a week and it was like night and day. <laughs> like suddenly my poops were normal. My brain fog was lifted. It was insane. And that's when I sort of got obsessed with, okay, what else can I do to really optimize my diet? And, you know, what things can I cut or add in to like feel this good all the time? I did also take an allergy test at one point and tested negative for celiac. So it's not a gluten allergy. And it's taken me a long time to to figure out, you know, what is it about gluten? And I know we'll talk about glyphosate later. And, and it's crazy because a lot of people I know do also have intolerance to gluten. But, you know, like you mentioned, like you can have pizza in Italy and it's fine. Like I can have baguettes in France and it's fine. There, there are reasons for that. Yeah, we were talking about that before we hit record. I completely gluten free now. And when I I'll be 100 percent transparent here. Last night I was at a friend's book club and somebody made some pumpkin bread and I indulged in a piece and I was absolutely miserable this morning. Just absolutely miserable. And when I lived in Italy, I ate all the pasta and bread I wanted and I never, ever had a problem. And same as you, I did test. I'm not celiac, but I do have Hashimoto's autoimmune and gluten really affects me. Brain fog, bloating, irritation. I become really irritated. So yeah, I, I, there's a lot of reasons for it, I think, you know, one is the way we process gluten, the way the wheat that we have here in America. I think people don't realize how terrible the way that we process our wheat actually is. Like it, it, it the end result isn't even wheat. <laughs> like it's just this solvent based garb, ultra processed garbage that is doesn't even resemble what they use. Yeah, totally. So. Yeah, the the crazy thing I found out about glyphosate and wheat is that it's been a practice for a while now, but farms are phasing it out, but is a lot of farms will spray glyphosate, which is a weed killer, all over the wheat crop right before harvest. And you would think like, oh, that's crazy. Like, wouldn't that kill the plant? Yes, it does. <laughs> the reason they do that 
is so they dry out the wheat before harvest so it's easier to process. But afterwards, they don't like wash it out. They don't clean out like anything. The glyphosate is just in that wheat that goes into the breads and the cereals and everything else. And we know that that glyphosate is tied to forms of cancer, gut issues, gluten intolerance, etc., which we can go into later. Yeah, I will go into that glyphosate especially in a little bit, but I want you to finish your gut healing story. Yeah, I guess from then on. So ever since I found out about gluten and what cutting that out could do for my body, I started looking at what other culprits could be in my day-to-day foods that I need to cut out or, or switch out. And since starting the podcast, I've realized like a couple really key things. And and one is this framework around like how processed your foods are. So I realized a lot of what we eat and like sometimes without knowing is ultra processed foods. And there's a difference between processed foods, which can be just cooked foods versus ultra processing, which is industrially made products. And it can be like, you know, random hidden things like your ketchup or like the keto bread I eat because it's gluten-free. And that's like the catch-22 with a lot of gluten-free things, especially baked goods is like, sure, they're gluten-free, but there's a lot of gums and things in it that, you know, make it not great for you. And so, yeah, I've been on this healing journey since. I feel like it's a forever thing at this point, just because your body also changes through different phases. But I I think that's the fun part too, is like you get to experiment and I just love food in general. So being able to experiment with new foods and talk about it, it's just my favorite thing. I love that. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I eat very ancestrally now. I know that's kind of a buzzword and a popular thing to say, but really for me, I also went through a vegetarian phase and I, for four years, I was a vegetarian. And then when I was pregnant with my son and five months old, I literally have never wanted a cheeseburger more than anything in my entire life. Like I had, my body was like screaming at me, like feed me protein. <laughs> and you can get protein from vegetarian diets, but with that protein comes massive amounts of carbs. And you also don't get the fat, that saturated animal-based fat that's full of all of those nutrients. And I'm not knocking on anybody who is a vegan or a vegetarian. I do think there's a lot of bio-individuality and a lot of, you know, what is your ancestral lineage and your genetics. And I don't think that food is ever a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. This is just my journey, what works for me, what did not work for me. Being a vegetarian did not work for my body. I was not healthy. My labs showed it. I had really bad blood sugar issues and I was eating so clean. But again, you have to eat so many carbohydrates as a vegetarian or as a vegan in order to get protein in that I was just eating so many carbs. So looking back, it makes so much sense to me why I had blood sugar issues, right? Because I wasn't balancing it out with good fats and good proteins. And now I eat a really balanced diet where I include, you know, nose to tail. We eat liver. My husband is an avid hunter. We eat heart. We eat, we eat, you know, as many parts of the animals we possibly can. I love to slow cook meats that have that gelatin because gelatin is such an important thing for your gut. And I I think a lot of people don't realize the gut lining, you need gelatin. I mean, there's other things you need to, but gelatin plays a really big role in helping keep your gut smooth and healthy and without those holes being poked into it by things like pesticides and your dishwashing detergent, which is another episode. But it's these foods that we never really considered as important for our health are so important for our gut health. And since I now eat very ancestrally, my health has been improved a million fold. I have my Hashimoto's is in remission. I no longer have stomach issues unless I indulge and eat gluten. And I also don't eat gluten-free products. And I think that's some, it's a process that people really have to go through where when I very first went gluten-free, I was eating all the gluten-free bread and I was getting the gluten-free cauliflower pizza. And it wasn't until like me kind of moving towards a more balanced macro balanced diet that I realized how 
like what was in. I mean, some of these breads have like 29 ingredients because that's how many chemical ingredients it takes to form a fake piece of bread that is, you know. And so it's just interesting. It's a journey. Food, it's your diet, your food, it's your culture, it's your journey. And then it's all just really individual. I do hear a lot, a lot of stories from people. I was vegan or I was vegetarian. I went through this process and now I eat very ancestrally. Mm-hmm. That is a common mm-hmm. thread that I, I'm seeing yep, today. Yeah, totally. I see it all over social media. And I'm so glad you brought up the bio-individuality piece. I want to share with you one of my absolute favorite new things. So last month, Primally Pure gifted me a brand new product that they were coming out with. They sent me the jar. They didn't tell me anything about what was in it whatsoever. And they said, just try it and let us know what you think. And, you know, I'm not really a big change up my skincare kind of person. I love my oil cleansing. I make my own. But if you're somebody who doesn't like to DIY, I love Primally Pure. And I support Primally Pure and I work with Primally Pure because they make unbelievably clean, organic products. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to give this a shot. It had this weird red brick colored texture to it. So I knew there was something that had, you know, high antioxidants in it. And I started using it and I recognized some of the smells. I could tell they had some lavender, some helichrysum, some frankincense. I knew these essential oils were part of my scar roller that I make. So if I ever need to like heal a scratch or a scrape or something I don't want to scar over, I'll use those oils. So I knew that it had some potent healing components to it. And after a month, I have to tell you, I'm absolutely in love with this product. It is called Antioxidant Bomb. And I was super pumped when it finally launched and the ingredients came out and I found out what was in it and I was right. It has grass-fed tallow, which gives it its nice smooth moisture that I love so much. It does have lavender, frankincense, and helichrysum. I was right. And it's got rosemary extract and plum kernel oil and green coffee oil. And it's just so good for things like discoloration and clarity. I just love it. I think it's going to become my winter staple, dare I say. I'll still use my face serum, but I think when I go to bed at night, this is going to go on over my serum. I think you will absolutely love Primally Pure's antioxidant bomb. Go down to the show notes, click the link, and use the code WendyCatherine at checkout, and you will get 10% off of every single order. I just did an episode on my DNA test results, which went through like my nutrition and diet needs and like carb sensitivity is a thing. Salt sensitivity is a thing. It's funny seeing how popular carnivore diets and animal based diets are nowadays, which is the opposite side of the extreme. But, you know, one of my DNA results was like I have a higher risk for basically toxin buildup if I have like well done red meats all the time. But you think of like people eating steak every day for breakfast. I'm like, well, that's just, that's never going to be for me. No. And, you know, and what is it? Asians have a hard time with beer, right? Something in the, and that that's very well known from a genetic perspective that whatever it is from some of the Asian cultures that processing, you know, I don't know if it's the barley, I don't know what it is in beer, but something in beer (laughs) that make. We all come from somewhere, and that somewhere is really contingent upon our environment. Did you come from a culture that lived by the ocean that lived off of fish, right? Did you grow up in India where your their vegetarian diets have been a way of life culturally for there for a very long time? Like there's just so many different things. And so I never want to come down on anyone's way of eating. I do I don't like the extremes. I, I don't like things like, keto and carnivore and vegan just in general as a as a concept that you have to be so restrictive of what you're eating i think that we all need a variety of things and then it's up to us to figure out how our body responds to it yeah i thought it would be fun because some of your episodes most of your episodes are very topical and you touch on so many topics that i get asked to do full episodes on and i thought well i had you here Let's like jump through some of these episodes and talk about the topics. And so that everybody kind of gets a taste of some of these more controversial issues. All right. The first, you are such an advocate for regenerative 
agriculture. And I don't think anybody knows what that means. I mean, those of us in this world, we know what it means. Nobody else knows what the F that means. And when you talk to people out in the real world and just normal people going about their business, going to the grocery stores, mostly moms and women who are shopping for their families, they want to buy good quality food and good quality meats. And they believe that organic is the best, right? Everyone's buying organic. It's the thing. Buy organic meat, buy grass-fed meat, all, all of that. So let's talk about the difference between organic and regenerative agriculture? Yeah, such a great question. So fundamentally, organic and regenerative have different goals, right? So organic, the point of an organic certification is to avoid the use of synthetic chemicals. So pesticides, fertilizers, and then with regenerative, really, you're looking at the whole picture. So you're looking to restore the ecosystem of the farm of the land, by building up the soil health, bringing back biodiversity, and that in turn sequesters more carbon and produces more nutrient-dense food. So I'm not saying one is better than the other because you can also have regenerative farms that do things like no-till that still use glyphosate, and you, you can have organic farms that look like monocrop industrial operations. They just don't spray glyphosate, for example. I think, you know, a lot of people buy organic because they're like, I don't want pesticides. And they probably don't understand that under certain conditions, there are some pesticides that can be used, you know, on organic farms. And that, like, just like you said, you know, let's say you have an organic orchard and you're buying organic apples. And then that, that farm, that orchard can have just rows and rows and rows of trees. They can be tilling all the soil so they they could be growing those trees in completely nutrient deficient soil, making and growing apples that do not have good nutrients in it whatsoever. But the one thing they have going for them is that they didn't spray glyphosate on it. And I think it it's a topic people really care about because being minerally deficient is a topic of conversation these days. And the mineral content of our food is directly related to the health of our yep, soil. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you're spraying glyphosate, glyphosate, you're actually stripping out more of the minerals from the soil. But that's an aside. I think um, my favorite way of describing what a regenerative farm looks like is if you imagine like a picture book version of an animal farm, you know, <laughs> like you've got your cows and your sheep and your chickens and you got your crops. And you have your animals and plants on one farm, right? And you stick your hands in the soil. It's moist. It smells alive. It's got worms. That is the epitome of a healthy regenerative farm. But it takes a lot of work to get to that level. So I forget the exact stat, but the majority of the soil in America is degraded. Like the majority of farmland soil is degraded. And there's a great documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. That walks through. That's my yes, favorite. So I love fun. it. My kids love that documentary. Love it. It's, it's such amazing. a great example. So it walks through one family and how they took a piece of degraded land in California and restored it into this like oasis, essentially. But it took them, I think that took them about five years to really build up the soils and build up the farm. And you have to really bring back the life in the soil. And one of the best ways to do that, that Joel Salatin talks about on his farm at Polyface Farm, is bringing animals onto the land. So this might be like kind of a weird, I don't know, it might sound surprising, but how it works is when you bring, for example, cattle over a piece of degraded land, it's maybe it's desertified, it's dry, there's like no organic matter in the soil. The cows will poop on the land and they'll like stamp their hooves into it, which pushes the poop in. And their manure actually has so much organic matter and bacteria that's really, really great for the soil. And that is a great recipe for building up topsoil that then brings nutrients in and makes for excellent ground to grow any kind of crops, really. And so I want to share some stats. Well, so when you increase the soil organic matter, it increases the water holding capacity and the carbon sequestration by a lot. 
So every 1% increase in soil organic matter increases the water holding capacity by 20,000 gallons per acre. So if you're on a 50 acre farm and you like up that organic matter by 2%, that piece of land will hold 2 million more gallons of water after each rain, which is insane. Like that's that's insane. And I love that you brought that up because as somebody who works in the environmental world, the one thing people don't realize is that all these monocropped agricultural fields that have destroyed all this topsoil, when rains come in, when heavy rains come in, it literally washes it all away and it becomes mudslides and a huge environmental problem. The farms that are regenerative, when it rains, because they have all these cover crops and like you said, they have all that soil that just absorbs it. The land absorbs all of the water and puts it right back into our aquifers and our water tables. It is like this perfect cycle of harmony. And it's funny because this is the way it used to be. This was the original way of farming. We fucked it all up, (laughs) right? Like we're like, you know what? I have a really good idea. We're going to make a lot of money. And we're going to monocrop everything and we're going to till everything and kill the biome of the soil. But it's okay because we're going to create a lot of food really quickly and we're going to make a lot of money. And the, the idea now that I love is I see people going back to the way, you know, our ancestors knew how to farm Wave. It's like we got lost and now we're coming yeah, back. Yes, that is totally a great way to put it. And That said, like, I do want to caveat that I'm not trying to knock on conventional farmers because they may have the greatest intentions of wanting to feed us and, you know, feed the country. But so much of our system from the subsidies to the policy to financial loans and things are biased towards the existing system. They're biased towards these industrial monocrop systems. So, I mean, huge props to the farmers that have made those transitions or like are starting from scratch, but it is a long road. And I will say one thing. So when buying organic versus regenerative, there isn't a single like widely used certification for regenerative like there is for organic yet. There's a couple ones out there. So there's the regenerative organic certification, which is best of both worlds. That's like creme de la creme. And then the Savory Institute offers a holistic management certification. There's a lot of these one-off kind of certifications out there, but that is something to note that if you're shopping in a grocery store, you won't necessarily know if something is regeneratively grown unless you do research on that farm itself. So let's do that right now. Let's If somebody really wants to shop more regeneratively and give their money Because I agree with you. If you know, you follow on Instagram, I follow a lot of people who have started regenerative farms or people our age who have gone and gone back to their family farms and they're trying to make them regenerative farms. It is a lot of money. It's a lot of loans. It's a lot of hard work. It's a like, it's not, it's not easy. There's a reason why people don't do it. It takes a lot of time. It's worth it. But it's it's not for you know the weak of heart <laughs> to to get into the regenerative agriculture world. And if anybody watches the documentary that we were talking about, Biggest Little Farm, you'll see their struggles. They're very open about it. It's very eye opening. But if you're just a person sitting at home who's like, oh, I really want to buy more produce that's regenerative, and I want to buy meat from regenerative, what are the best ways to find? Yeah, those? absolutely. I think the best way is really to look for farms or brands that tout themselves as regenerative, like use that language, but also they're transparent about their farming practices. So for example, if you're buying like eggs and chickens from a regenerative farm, you want to see, obviously, is there enough pasture land for the chickens to actually be outside? And it's not just that they're in a barn and have a door open. The other thing I should mention about the grazing operations is that In conventional agriculture, there's a tendency to overgraze if you have too many animals on a small piece of land. And so with well-run grazing operations, you want to have like some way of moving the animals around the field. 
So that might look like mobile fences, mobile water sources and things like that so that you know that there's proper management of moving the animals around. I think when it comes to vegetables, there's questions you can ask the farm around, you know, do, like how do they manage the soils? Do they use cover crops or do they till? You can ask about what kinds of weed and pest management practices they use. Do they use chemicals or do they maybe plant cover crops that might act as those things or bringing in animals to help with pest management as well? There's a whole list of questions that you can ask, essentially trying to dig into what are their farm practices. The best thing you can do is go and visit the farm, see the conditions that the animals are grown in, like see how the fields are managed and start to build relationships with the farms that you source food from. Yeah, I love that. And I think for the average person, something that I did when I first started getting into caring a lot about this, I went to a farmer's market and you go walk around and you talk to the farmer's market, you know, the people that are there and and you say, where are you located? Can I come take a look at the farm? And you find the people. I find this in the products industry as well. The people who are doing things really well are so excited to tell you about it. And they're so excited to show you. So if you ask and they're like, I mean, then that's probably a flag, right? But going to farmer's markets, because cities all over America have farmer's markets, go and instead of buying products from, you know, all the different vendors at a farmer's market, find one or two or three that you can build a relationship with. And I find that if you go to their farm, you'll get a better deal. You'll pay less money for their produce if you work directly with them versus buying it while you're at the farmer's market. I also really love the company Force of Nature which is a subscription service similar to ButcherBox. Although I think the last time you and I talked, you told me ButcherBox sources their meat from Australia. So it's not, it's not local. It's like being flown, you know, all the way across the world. But Force of Nature is similar to ButcherBox. It has, you know, all they're working with regenerative farms and their mission is to get as many farms transferred over to regenerative practices by creating these large co-ops that they can then sell their meat products through force of nature. And I think that if you're literally somebody sitting at home listen to, listening to this saying like, just tell me where to buy it, farm, farmers markets or force of nature, and I'll put links. Another great option is farm match. And I'll put a link to that as well. Farm match, you can go in, you can put your zip code in, and they can match you with a local farm. And that's another great way to figure out like who in your local area, you know, can provide you. Yeah. Amazing. Totally. Check those out. I'll shout out a couple more too. So we order meats from Peterson's Natural Farms. They're based outside of Austin, Texas. And I had Neil Dudley, who who works for them on my podcast to talk about their pigs and how they're raised and how they're happy in their barns. The other, if folks are in the Northeast, Walden Local Meats is another great option and they do like a similar subscription service. That's awesome. And for anybody in the San Diego area, head down to Ocean Beach and go to Front Row Meats. They also have like a monthly subscription, but they also have, you can go in and you can actually just buy it retail and that when I'm in San Diego, they get all my business because they work with all the local farmers. They do butchering. It's it's amazing. So the options, there's uh, there's options out there and more and more are popping up every day, which is fantastic. Okay, let's move on to my favorite topic in the entire world and that is raw milk. <laughs> so in your words, and I loved the episode that you did with Mark and Max on it, and I will, I'm will i going to actually tag this episode in the show notes so people can just go straight and listening to listen to it. It's so fascinating. The history of raw milk, why it became illegal, why all of that. And I don't think we need to get into the weeds, but what makes raw milk different than pasteurized milk? Because there's a lot of people listening to this who know me and know I drink raw milk, and they might be wondering, why? And how come I'm not scared of getting sick? Because that's what most people think. But I, from California, I lived in California for you know most of my adult life. And in California, you can walk into any grocery store. Well, not any, but most grocery stores, definitely like Sprouts or any local health food store. And I buy raw milk right off the shelf and I check out and I go home. So it's, you know, it's a very normal thing in California for people to buy raw milk. And when I moved to Virginia and found out 
it was illegal and I literally had to buy a share of a cow in order to get raw milk. I was a little floored. But I would love to hear from you. So raw milk, let's talk yeah, about Yeah, oh my gosh, California is living in the future. Okay, so the whole idea of pasteurized milk being healthy for you is like a social construct, basically. <laughs> That's probably my biggest takeaway from that episode and folks can learn the details there. But I will share a, a little bit of the history lesson because raw milk is still illegal to sell in 37 states. And that's from like based on laws from the 1880s. So back then when cities were just starting to pop off in the states like Philly, Boston, New York, cows started getting brought into the cities. But the cities were, conditions were terrible, super dirty. And a lot of people started getting sick from milk and dying. They also got sick from drinking the water because everything was just really dirty. And so Louis Pasteur comes into the picture with this new innovation where if you heat up the milk to a certain temperature for a certain time, it'll destroy all the bacteria. And so less people started getting sick from the milk. And so that became codified as the, nor as the norm and the law. But little did we know at the time that pasteurization also kills all the good bacteria. And it turns out that raw milk has over 700 live bacterial cultures, which have this amazing ability to heal the gut. So if you listen to that episode, Max Kane used to have, or he was diagnosed with Crohn's disease as a teenager. And in his 20s, he discovered raw milk and started drinking it, and it immediately made him feel better. Like suddenly it didn't hurt to eat, and, and it just like started transforming his gut. Because raw milk is kind of taboo, <laughs> it's like not still not talked about very widely. But if you go on PubMed, you can find there's over 70 studies that have done been done on the health effects and health benefits of raw milk. And probably the best comparison you can make is between raw milk and human breast milk. And like nobody can argue with the be benefits of breast milk, right? It's literally the food for babies. It provides nutrition, but also seeds the baby's immune system. I'll point out one study in particular that I found really interesting. So it's called the Gabriella study, and it was done on about 3,000 kids in the city versus the country. And they looked at asthma, allergies, eczema, and hay fever rates among these children. And they found that there was virtually zero among the kids growing up in the country and a big factor of that was that they were consuming raw milk. So it's super interesting. And then on the flip side, if you look at pasteurized milk, it's the most allergenic food in the country. And the reason for that is when you heat up the milk, you end up, of course, killing all that bacteria and, you know, bursting a lot of the uh, live cells that are in the milk. And when that happens, I think it's called cell lysis, but all those like broken pieces of the cells, when you drink the milk, your body interprets that as biological junk, essentially. And a lot of us just reject that milk. And so hopefully that gives a picture of some of the health pieces. And when I found out about the history, I was like, this is crazy. Like, why aren't we all just drinking raw milk? Yeah, I've so I've read the majority of those studies. They're incredible. And sadly, they're not allowed to be posted anywhere. I actually shared one of them a few months back and then Instagram threatened to shut down my account for spreading misinformation, which is hilarious because it was literally a published, peer-reviewed scientific article published in a medical journal out of Europe. And they were like, this is false. And it, it was explaining you know, what you said, like allergies, asthma, all of these things. And when I talk about raw milk to people, because people ask me a lot, like, why do you drink raw milk? You can't even compare it to pasteurized milk because it's apples and oranges. It's not even the same food, like at all, because the idea of raw milk is that it's a whole food. Like it's a whole pro whole protein, whole food, a whole has amino acid profiles. It has enzymes. It has good bacteria. And a big part of my my gut health journey was drinking a lot of raw milk. And I still do. I still pick up my raw milk every Sunday. I went and bought that cow share. <laughs> my kids drink it nonstop. It's a big part of having good bacteria in your gut. And I love it. And I, it tastes so good. And now if I ever have pasteurized milk, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even taste good to me anymore. 
And I always, I usually explain it like my kids asked me at one point because, you know, their friends are curious. They're like, why is your mom so weird? Why do you have raw milk in your house? Like, you know, kids are like, can you just serve my friend's pizza, yeah, right. mom? Come on. <laughs> you order some Domino's. How do you um, explain it to your kids? I'm I'm the hippie mom. Everyone around the – all of my kids' friends are like, oh, your mom's such a hippie. And I'm like, yep, I totally am. You're welcome. Come on over and drink some raw milk. But I tell my kids, I'm like, think of it like this and explain it to your friends like this. The pasteurized milk is dead milk and raw milk is live milk. That's the difference. So easy. So simple. Okay. Go get a cow share, people. If you if you're if it's illegal in your state, I'm sure you can go buy one eighth of a cow like I did. All right. I loved the episode you did with Chef Dr. Mike on seed oils. And I love this topic because people are actually, this is becoming popular. This is like, it's having a moment. Seed oils are having a moment and I love it. I'm here for it. So uh, what's your take on seed oils? Yeah, it is a thing. Seed oils are not, they're the devil. (laughs) You should stay away from them. Yeah, it, it's um it sucks cuz my my parents have been cooking with canola oil for so long cuz it's cheap and like, you know, it performs well, it has a high smoke temp and all this stuff. But vegetable oils, I'm saying that with air quotes, are like a totally made up thing. They're not vegetables at all. It's like things like rapeseed, canola. These are industrial products. And ultimately at a molecular level, they're what's called polyunsaturated fats, and it means The important takeaway is that they're unstable, right? So if you compare that to animal fats like lard, butter, they're they're relatively solid at room temperature, right? And that's because at a molecular level, they're stable. And then you have olive oil, which is like a different category. So olive oil is a monounsaturated fat. So it does move around a little bit, but it's way more stable than these so-called vegetable oils. And olive oil is also, it's it's naturally extracted. It's pressed, right? People have been doing it for centuries. So with these vegetable oils, anytime you cook them in high temperature, you are creating trans fats. And we've known for a long time that trans fats are bad. (laughs) They're linked to heart health issues, inflammation, type 2 diabetes, even birth defects, and and more. And the uh, obesity. obesity, Yep. Or as Chef Dr. Mike says, diabesity, because they're always linked. And also when you cook these vegetable oils, you release over 50 novel cis molecules, which most of which we have no idea what their effect is on the human body. Over 90% of the canola oil in the U.S. and Canada is GMO, so they've been exposed to a lot of pesticides, and you want to stay away from those. So long story short, avoid any and all of those vegetable oils, you know, the ones, they look yellow, they come in a clear plastic bottle. So the good fats to use are olive oil, like I mentioned. I actually did a whole episode on how to shop for high-quality olive oil. You do want to look for extra virgin. The most important thing actually is to look at the harvest date on the back of the bottle because that'll tell you how fresh it is. I was shopping for some olive oil the other day and like within the same skew, like the same product line, there was like bottles from 2021 and 2023. I'm like, okay, well, obviously I'm going for the fresher ones. But some of my favorite brands there are California Olive Ranch. They do uh, some great olive oils. And Vignoli is a small brand by this guy who like hand curates the olive oil from Italy. And he's based out of Florida. Other oils that are okay to use are avocado oil and grapeseed oil, particularly for cold use. Like those are totally fine. But in general, olive oil is great. And then the other big category is animal fats. Right. So butter, lard, tallow, those are all super, super stable and you can cook them to like any temperature and there's all kinds of great benefits too. They're like super bioavailable. I will do this thing where we we buy these sausages from Peterson's Farms and they have like a little bit of flavor to them too. And so I'll always cook down the sausages and then pour the lard into a jar and save that to stir fry my veggies. So you get like a two for one. Oh, I love that. And I think a lot of people don't realize too that olive oil 
is there's a lot of fraudulent olive oil on the market. And so also making sure it's like a single farm that you're getting it from. And it doesn't just say, you know, product of these seven places in Italy, because there is a lot of olive oil on the market that's been tested. I think Consumer Reports did a huge expose where they it was like fit, over 50 to 60% of the olive oil on sold in stores as olive oil isn't even olive oil or it's mixed with canola oil. So know your brands. I cook with lard. It's my favorite thing to cook with. Grass-fed butter is the next thing or ghee. I do will also cook with ghee, but like you, like seed oils really are the devil. Like so many of our inflammatory diseases, diabetes, obesity, cancer, I, these things are so unstable and they're basically industrial products. They're they're not food. And this whole heart healthy, you know, margarine heart healthy movement is causing so many of our heart problems. And I think, you know, it's easy for people to just not cook with canola oil because I don't know, you know, that people are anyway, guys, some people are. The hardest thing is processed foods. When you read processed foods, whether it's chips or pizza or breads, tortillas, even like anything, chips, crackers, anything that is processed, ultra processed, you're going to see canola oil, salad dressing, ketchup. I mean, they, they throw canola oil and freaking everything. Oat milk. That was my, oh my God. I used to be such a fan of Oatly. And then when I learned they use canola oil, I'm like, no, I, I love their branding, but I just can't so anymore. Sad. Yeah. Don't they use gums too in there? Yeah. And I think this is just important. Read your labels. If you're, you know, whatever, try to avoid ultra processed anyway. Whole foods are the way to go. But if you are, try really hard to avoid Canola oil. Siete is a brand that I really love that uses, you know, doesn't use any canola oil. They use avocado for like their chips and their other things. So shout out to Siete brand. They make those really good wraps out of like cassava Mm -hmm. flour and things. Cassava. Cassava. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they make really good cookies. I like their almond ones. They do. They have Mexican shortbread cookies that I love. Yeah. So good. And they're (laughs) gluten-free. All right, let's touch on glyphosate because you interviewed glyphosate girl, who I love. She's amazing. So let's talk about that yes, for a second. Yes, and you should totally get her on your podcast because she will dive deep into this. So what is glyphosate, first of all? So glyphosate is the active chemical or ingredient in Roundup, which is the most widely used herbicide in the world. If you've heard of Monsanto, they are the makers of Roundup. So a recent study from the CDC showed that 80% of U.S. urine samples tested positive for glyphosate. It's a chemical that's ubiquitous now at this point. It's used in a ton of farming, but also gardening, lawns. And so it's it's really hard to avoid completely. And quick history lesson here. So glyphosate was actually developed as a metal cleaner in the 60s. It was used to clean boilers and pipes in factories. And then in the 70s, they realized that, hey, it's actually a really good herbicide also. And so in the 90s, when the patents started to expire, Monsanto was like, how do we juice more money out of this thing? And so they came up with this genius plan where they developed GMO seeds that they called Roundup Ready. And so they came in as a package where you get these genetically modified seeds that are made to grow even when you spray glyphosate on them. And so it's perfect for a farmer. You just buy the seeds, you buy the glyphosate. You don't have to do any of the manually worrying about weeds and things popping up. So it's like seems like a perfect solution, but it causes all kinds of problems. We had talked about the chemicals leaching into the groundwater and and all that downstream effects. Um, and then in terms of health effects, so there's a clear link between glyphosate and certain cancers, namely non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There have been some big lawsuits around this and Bayer, which is the company that acquired Monsanto, they've actually set aside, I want to say like a 10 billion, don't quote me on that, but (laughs) billions of dollars for for future lawsuits coming from people who develop cancer, which is crazy. Glyphosate is also linked to autoimmune disease by causing dysbiosis in the gut. Glyphosate causes damage to the microbiome, selectively harming beneficial strains while sparing other more pathogenic bacteria. And it's there's a ton of other active research going on linking glyphosate to gluten intolerance, 
infertility, a lot of health issues. The other thing I'll say about US versus Europe is that there is a loophole in the EPA where when you're registering a pesticide or a chemical product, you only need to list one active ingredient. And so for Monsanto, they put glyphosate, but what we don't what they don't tell us is that they put in a ton of other chemicals, namely surfactants, which are like the soapy substances. And the the surfactant POEA in Roundup is highly toxic and is actually banned in the EU. So, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why wheat is a little bit safer in Europe. There's a ton of other reasons too. I mean, just like culturally, they care a lot more about the quality of their food. And so, just at every step of the way, it's going to be a safer product. And then I'll, okay, so I'll end up on like, what can you actually do since glyphosate is virtually everywhere? So a couple of things like we mentioned is buy organic wherever and whenever you can, especially with fruits and veggies where you're eating the peel, say carrots or strawberries, things like that. The other thing is that, you know, I mentioned like lawns and parks and things. So a lot of times like in schools and in city parks, if you see someone with a backpack and a hose like spraying things down, that's more than likely glyphosate. And so one thing you can do is, you know, speak to your schools and speak to your, you know, city council and let petition to, you know, not use Roundup or to replace them with other things. This affects all of our health, our kids, our dogs too. You know, dogs have been known to get non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from, you know, lawns and things like that. So if anything, do it for your pets. Yeah, I get asked a lot what for yards, like, you know, what should people use? I love the company Wonderside. They make really good, safe, toxin-free products for spraying your lawn, doing all kinds of lawn care, lawn care, and it's not going to impact your pets. And as somebody who has two dogs, I'm like – don't poison my pet. So I actually, my neighbor the other day, I saw them out. I saw him outside spraying his yard and we purposely like avoided. I kind of want to like go around my neighborhood and do a little like maybe like a little town hall, like come learn about safer ways to, but you know, then I'd be that person. <laughs> You'd be that mom. <laughs> I'd be that mom. I'm already the hippie mom. Let's, you know. Might as well lean into it. Right? Maybe I should. Totally. I loved this conversation. I, you know, I want to kind of start to close out by letting people know where they can learn more. There have been some really amazing documentaries and coalitions and organizations that are really trying to push, we call it regen because it's, you know, regenerative is such a long, annoying word to say. So we've shortened it. We say regen. Kiss the Ground is my favorite. So that documentary, if anybody can go watch Kiss the Ground, it's phenomenal. And it's also an organization that I love and believe in and support. What are some other documentaries that or, you know, places where people can get information? Yeah, absolutely. I'll just mention too. So the team behind Kiss the Ground is now part of this a policy advocacy movement called Regenerate America. So everyone should go check them out, sign the petition to heal America's soils. But other documentaries, so Sacred Cow is probably my favorite one. It's a great primer on regenerative agriculture and talks a lot about the animal side of things. That one's created by Diana Rogers, who's a real food dietitian. She's um, Sustainable Dish on Instagram, and she has a podcast too. I love her. We talked about Biggest Little Farm. That's a great like family-friendly one. I mean, these are all family-friendly, but that one in particular is super wholesome. I do want to mention a couple other resources. They're not necessarily documentaries. So one person to check out is Nina Teicholz. She is probably like the biggest luminary around seed oils and animal fats. So she has a great talk that I can share the YouTube link with you. But she also has a book called The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. And the last one I'll mention is a book that I really love and I think everyone should read. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Walkimer. She is an indigenous professor and ecologist, and she brings a really interesting perspective on how humans and nature can work together versus, you know, vilifying or one or the other or any of that stuff. So yeah, those are some of my favorites. I love that. I've never read that book. I'm going to have to put that on my Kindle yes. reading list. Beautiful one. That is awesome. So 
Where can my audience find you? I will link your podcast so people can go binge the podcast the way that I did. <laughs> but where can people find you and interact yeah, with you? Yeah, so awesome. Yeah, please feel free to check out the podcast. It's on all podcast apps. And I pretty much exclusively hang out on Instagram. So you can find me at farm.to.future. My DMs are open anytime. I, I love chatting about all things food. So hope to see you there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And this was fantastic. I know that people are going to get a lot out of this education. We hit on all the topics that I get asked about pretty often. So at a minimum, they got a basic education and I think they got information that they can go out into the world and make better health choices. So thank you, Jane. Thank you so much, Wendy. This has been so much fun. You, my friend, have officially finished another episode of the Detox Dilemma podcast. And if you want more, head over to wendycatherine.com to get all the show notes and links to discount codes from our amazing partners. If you're looking for something specific to help you detox your home, make sure you check out my toxin-free shopping guide at toxinfreeshoppingguide.com. It's organized by category and makes detoxing your home simple. I'll see you next week. And until then, I hope your life is getting just a little less toxic.